looking at the book of Esther for a, a couple of weeks now, and we said that the theme for the book of Esther is God's invisible hand of providence. And so we have this idea of, of providence. And one of the things I wanted to make sure we did very clearly was give a, a good definition for what providence is, because we're talking about it for the next couple of, of weeks. Uh, there's a, a pastor and theologian by the name of J. Vernon McGee. And here's how he defined providence. He said, providence is a means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, towards a worthy purpose, which means that his will will, will finally prevail. And here's how I defined it. I, I, circum, uh, I made that a little bit easier for us to understand. And, and, and I would say that providence is God's sovereign, which means God is in control of all things. That God is sovereign and good, and he rules in the details of history. He rules in the details of our lives over all people, over all times, over all places. And he rules these things for our good and for his glory. So if we can understand this big picture that God is in control of all things, then we understand God's providence. That he works things together for our good, for his glory. Now here's, here's the issue though. It's defining and understanding what providence is. Like that's one thing that's good, that, that's important. But actually discerning God's providence in the middle of our lives, of the complexity of our lives, that is a completely different thing, is it not? I mean, understanding it, sure, I can understand it. But when I'm in the middle of life, when it gets perplexing and frustrating and confusing and difficult, that even in the most painful moments, I'm left wondering, God, God, what are you doing? I thought you were in control. And so us understanding what providence is and also being able to interpret providence in our life is a completely different thing. Let me give you an example. Uh, there was a, a basketball player by the name of, of, of Michael Riley. All right. This is a kid who, who uh, grew up, uh, born in the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, uh, his family, uh, they were a, a traveling ministry family. They would go around the country. They would sing. They would perform for churches. And, and they, were, they were a Christian family. They're, they're giving their lives to follow God. In 1994, they happened to get home for a couple of days. And a gang member in the neighborhood came in, broke into the house, shot four people in the house, killed Michael Riley's aunt. Middle of that. Here's a family who loves God, who's serving God, who've given their lives to follow him. And there's this horrendous murder. And left wondering, God, what are you, what are you doing? Like, God, I don't, I don't get this. I don't see how this fits into uh, this, this thing of providence. This family's left heartbroken. Well, grandma had a, a life insurance policy out on the daughter. So she got the uh, life insurance and she ended up deciding, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in a full-size basketball court. I don't know why. I'm just going to... So she, she takes the inheritance and she, she builds this basketball court. And this is where little Michael Riley learns how to, to dribble a basketball, learns how to, how to shoot a basketball, learns how to pass a basketball, and, and practices all this time. And, and he gets into high school and his freshman year, he couldn't even make the freshman team. But he keeps working at it. He loves it. Uh, his junior year, he makes a JV team. His senior year, he makes a varsity team. Isn't even a starter. But just so happens, um, I missed this memo. But when he graduated high school, he grew like five inches. Like, like, in, like I missed, I didn't get that one. I didn't grow those five inches, all right? But he grew like five inches. And so his coach got him a couple of opportunities. He went and tried at a couple of junior colleges. Kind of flunked out kind of struggled through it until he finally got his head right and said, all right, I'm going to do this. And he uh, had an opportunity to go play for Alabama, playing college basketball for Alabama. 
And it comes in the year 2008, they're in the SEC uh, tournament. They're, they're in the tournament, and there's a game where they're playing against the number one seed, uh, Mississippi State. Okay? Two seconds left in the game. Two seconds left in the game. Alabama is down by three points. And so what are they going to do? They drop the play. Say, here, we're going to take the ball. We're going to inbound it to you, Michael. You take the shot. You get the ball, you take the shot. Okay? So they pass it inbound. Michael, he's 28 feet away. He takes this awkward jumper and he takes a shot. Now, now, for those of you, you've seen me play basketball. Like a 28-inch shot is hard enough for me. Let alone 28 feet on an awkward. Uh, you're laughing because you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. So I want you, maybe you're a sports fan, maybe you're not. But I want you to picture this scene, okay? There are 14,825 that are people that have packed the Georgia Dome. They're at the edge of their seat. As they watch that ball fly out of his hands, they watch that ball uh, hit the rim, roll around the rim. They watch that ball bounce off the backboard and in through the hoop. That is a buzzer beater. Sends the game into overtime, an improbable circumstance. Now, what's fascinating about that shot, eight minutes after that shot was made, with two minutes and 15 seconds left in overtime, there's a tornado that, threw, that, that tore through downtown Atlanta. It roared right past the Georgia Dome. Recognizing if, if, if he would have missed that shot, 14,825 people would have been literally in, in the path of that tornado. His shot literally saved lives. His shot was a lifesaver. Now, when you think about that story... When his aunt was shot, I mean, nobody could understand that. Nobody could picture that. No one can see that. I mean, th there was no possible way for them to be certain that on the other side, hey, this is what's going to happen. But what you do see in this story is you do see a young man who begins to, to learn how to play basketball, who begins to love basketball, who learns how to shoot a ball so he could take a shot that was literally going to save lives. And that is such the mystery of providence. Where we get in the middle of life and we don't understand, God, what's happening here? But then we can begin to step back and look. And this is why we say providence is a word that is best read backwards. Because you look back and begin to see, okay, God, I see what you were doing. I see you had a plan. I see you had a purpose. So I want us to think this morning about the mystery of providence. Of what that looks like in your life, what that looks like in our culture, in our city, in our world. And while you're doing that, uh, uh, we're going to be in Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19 today. A little bit of summary, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, here's what you need to know about this story. Uh, we're looking at the story, uh, there's, a guy, there's a king by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes is a king of Persia. He's not a very godly man. He's not a very godly man at all. But he is the king over the, the, the largest uh, uh, the largest nation, the largest empire uh, in the known world at that point. So he was the most powerful man. He was the wealthiest man. He was the most well-known man in the world at that stage, at that day and age. And we know the story goes where he decides, hey, Vashe, I want you to come out. I'm having a party. I want you to come out and I want to show you off to all my friends. So everybody will say, look how cool you are. You got a beautiful wife. And Vashti refuses. So what does he do? He divorces her. He says, you didn't come when I called you. Boom, you're done. Divorces her. Story goes on. Uh, King, King Xerxes goes into war. Goes into war against Greece. And he loses the war in a big way. He comes home and he's lonely. Oh man, what did I divorce my wife for? 
And so his young men, his young attendants were like, hey, we got a new idea for you, king. We're going to find you a new queen. We're going to gather all of the beautiful young virgins. Okay, th- that was the requirement to be a king. You had to be beautiful. You had to be young. You had to be a virgin. They gather all the beautiful young wor- virgins in the land, and they bring and they have this sensual bachelorette competition. And that is when we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jew who lived in Persia. And, and the story says that he raised his orphaned cousin, Esther. And these are a group of people, Esther and Mordecai. They claim to belong to God. They, they claim to love God. But at this point in the story, there isn't much evidence of them actually living for God. And so uh, here's Mordecai and Esther. Esther gets chosen to be a part of the competition. And, and sure enough, she spends one night with the king. She pleases the king more than any of the other young virgins. And she is chosen as the new queen over Persia. And that's where our story picks up today. Verse 19 says Xerxes had a, a second gathering of all the virgins. So this is after she's anointed queen. Maybe he's gathering everybody to say, hey, all you virgins, I want you to see. Here's the woman I chose as my queen. That could be one idea. He wants to present her to all these virgins. The other idea it is often it's said in that day where the king would turn over his stock. Kind of like, you know, when you uh, have a grocery store and you turn over stock, you're out with the old, in with the new. There's a lot of historians that believe that essentially, as he brought the young virgins in, he was sending his old concubines out. Hey, you guys are done with. I've got these new, improved versions to come and replace you. Again, I want you to catch, he's just a, he's not a very good man. Okay, you kind of catch that idea. And verse 19 says, Mordecai was sitting at the gate. Now, the gate in the city, this is where politics and, and, and financial business happened, okay? This was, uh, you might think about the business district of a big town, a downtown area. This was a business district for the city. This is where everything happened. So here's Mordecai sitting at the gate. So he's got some sort of governmental position. He, he's got, he's got a, a, a public office of sorts. He's got an important job there. Verse 20. Verse 20, when you look at verse 20, I, I think it's interesting where it says that uh, Esther had not made known yet her kindred or her people. She had not let her faith be known. For whatever reason, Mordecai had told her, hey, don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. Don't let, everybody, don't not, don't let anybody know that you love God. And we're not told why he does this. But I want to just speak into this for a second. Again, this is, uh, is going to be my word, not God's word. Okay? And I want you to hear this. Because listen, if you are hesitant about being public about your faith, if you are hesitant to, to put it out there, hey, I belong to God, I love Jesus, I worship him. If you're afraid of being mocked or opposed or disliked, if you have this idea that my, my, my faith is all private and it's not public, can I just make a suggestion? Again, this is my word, not God's word. My suggestion is that you actually do not worship Christ, but you worship comfort. If you are hesitant to put it out there, Hey, I belong to Jesus. Perhaps the reason is because you worship comfort more than you actually worship Christ. So here's Mordecai at the gate. Here's the gathering that's happening. In verse 21, it says that Mordecai overhears a plot. There are two of the king's eunuchs who plot to kill King Xerxes. Now, eunuchs, we've talked about eunuchs last week, this week, and I haven't defined what a eunuch is. Basically, what the king would do is the king would draft a bunch of young men. Think about the military draft. Uh, you get your number called and you got to go and show up. The king drafts a number of young men, a couple hundred young men, and he brings them in and he, crack, he castrates them. And he gives them the job, hey, you're going to go work in my harem and I'm going to castrate you that way there's no competition. These are my girls, you're not going to touch them. Okay? So here's two of the king's eunuchs thinking, well, why would they want to plot against the king? 
well, of course, he just made them a eunuch. Like, it just makes perfect sense to me why they would want to plot against the king. So here's Mordecai. He overhears this plot, and he's got a little bit of a dilemma. Okay, again, let me ask you this. Xerxes, is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy. Like, everything we've seen, he's not a very good guy at all. And here's Mordecai with this dilemma. What do I do now? I mean, Mordecai, I mean, excuse me, uh, King Xerxes, like, he probably deserves to die. Like, he's not a very good man. Like, he probably deserves what's coming to him, right? And and we can sit here and make, we can make a, a claim and we can justify why Mordecai should just be silent. And let these guys do what they're going to do to the king. Because he's just not a very good guy. But here's what I want us to understand this morning. The wrong thing, even for the right reasons, is still the wrong thing. I mean, I think that is, for someone in here today, you need to hear that. That you can do the wrong thing for the best of intentions. And it's still the wrong thing. Mordecai, he could have been silent. He could have just said, hey, king, this, you've got it coming to you. But the wrong thing, even for the best of intentions, is still wrong. God values life. God values every life. And as we are his followers, we are to value what God values. So we are to value life. Listen, that may, that may look like you may not like somebody else's life. But we still value it. That means we value the life of the aged. We value the life of the unborn. We value the life of the wicked who don't deserve it. We value, we stand up for them. We put our voice out there and stick up for them. So here's Mordecai. He's got this dilemma. And he chooses, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. He tells Esther, hey, there's this plot against the king. Esther goes to the king. Hey, king, there's this plot. I heard about from Mordecai. She gives credit to Mordecai. And so verse 23 says that the king investigates the report. This is going to be important because later we're going to see him not investigate something. He investigates the report, finds there to be truth to it. And so uh, because it's true, the two, youth, the two eunuchs, they are hanged in the gallows. Now, I want to just, to the gallows, like we have this wild, wild west picture of the gallows where, you know, guys on a rope. And that's not the gallows they're talking about. The Persians were actually the people that started the whole idea of crucifixion. And it was perfected by the Romans. But when, they, when the Persians created this idea of crucifixion, uh, what they did is they impaled you on a pole. Yeah, that's what they was. And so history would tell us that these two eunuchs were impaled on a pole as a symbol for everybody to see. Hey, if you try and cross the king, this is what's going to happen to you. Verse 23, it says that all this happened and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles. This was recorded for the king, for his posterity. So if he wanted to go back, he would always know for all time and for all history, hey, these are the people who plotted against you, and this is the guy who saved your life, Mordecai. Now, we come to this part of the story, and we're like, well, we expect a reward for Mordecai, right? Like, we expect the guy who does the right thing, you should be rewarded. Like, the king should at least send you a thank you letter, take you out to lunch, buy you coffee, do something. We expect something. But that's not what we're going to find. Because the story continues in chapter 3, verse 1. Where it says that Xerxes promotes Haman. Promotes Haman to the second highest position in all of the kingdom. And again, as we're looking at this book that's teaching us about God's providence, one of the things you're constantly going to find yourself doing is you hear the story, you're saying, that's not fair. That's not right. 
I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm like, Mordecai, he deserves something. He deserves at least to be promoted, right? Mordecai did the right thing. And now all of a sudden there's this guy, Haman, who's being promoted. As you read through the story, you're going to find yourself saying, man, that's not right. That's not fair. I don't understand why this is happening. And there's this tension as we're trying to comprehend what providence looks like. It's why sometimes it doesn't make sense in our eyes and in our mind. So Haman's promoted to second highest in the kingdom. In verse 2, it says there was this command that everybody was supposed to bow before Haman. He was given this honor, this high honor, and everybody's supposed to bow. And everybody does it except Mordecai. Except Mordecai. Verse 7 says that this occurred in the 12th year of the reign of the king. So it's somewhere between five years between when uh, Esther was promoted to queen and when this story happens. So this could have been going on for five years. It could have been gone for two years. We don't know how long it went on. The question is, well, why, why wouldn't Mordecai bow before Haman? Maybe there's an animosity. Maybe he was a little bit frustrated. Hey, you got promoted and I deserved it. So maybe there's some animosity there. And so there's all this time where Mordecai refuses to bow. And his, his co-workers are like, dude, what's up? Dude, why aren't you bowing? The king told everybody to bow. Why aren't you bowing? And in verse 4, Mordecai gives his reason. He says, I'm not bowing before him in because I'm a Jew. Right? I'm a Jew. Again, here's the story of Mordecai. Mordecai probably shouldn't be in Persia. He probably should have gone back with God's people to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple to be in the presence of God. Okay? Mordecai, there's no evidence at this point in the story that he's ever prayed. There's no evidence that he's gone to church. There's no evidence that he, he, he sang those worship songs that we sing. There's no evidence of his faith. And here he is saying, oh, oh, sorry, guys. We've worked together for the last 10 years. I, I forgot to tell you, uh, I'm a Jew. I love God. Kind of picture the story. And they're like, well, what kind of Christian are you? And he's like, I'm part of the hypocritical kind. We're a huge denomination. There's lots of us. Of course there is. And we see Mordecai, we see he doesn't bow. And we like to think, well, he doesn't bow because he loves God. He's like Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel? Where Daniel refused to bow? And we kind of look over like, well, maybe he's like Daniel. But I don't think that's the case. Because in that culture, bowing was not necessarily a religious thing. I mean, think about this. Think about if you've been in the military and you come across someone with a higher rank than you, what do you do? You salute. That's just, it's honoring the position. It's not a religious thing. In some Asian cultures, cultures you still do that today. You still bow in Asian cultures. If you're in uh, England and you're going to go, go see the queen, what are you going to do? If you're a girl, you're going to do a little curtsy. If you're a guy, you're going to do a little bit of a bow. It's, it's honoring the position. So in this narrative, you see Mordecai refusing to bow. And I, I want you to notice, how many, how many of the Jews refused to bow before Haman. I mean, the narrative doesn't tell us about anybody else. Narrative says there's one guy who's refusing to bow to Haman. So I want you to catch this. I want you to see the tension here because there's something a little bit deeper that we have to, to lead into. Verse 5, it says that Haman, he hears this and he's filled with fury. He's just angry. And he makes a decision. You know what? I don't want to just hurt Mordecai. What I want to do is I'm going to destroy all of the Jews. I mean, like that escalated pretty quickly, right? You've got one guy who won't bow. Now he wants to destroy his entire heritage. And again, you, you, you feel this tension in the story. 
You feel this tension in the story where Mordecai refuses to bow, and now all of a sudden Haman wants to create a genocide and get rid of all of the Jews. This is where I want you to to, to think, and I want to lead us in a little bit deeper to find out what's going on here. Because when you look at a narrative text uh, in Scripture, oftentimes uh, the characteristic that is uh, described when somebody is introduced is important for you to understand how they fit into the story. So if I was being introduced, you'd say, Kevin, the really funny guy. Kevin, the good-looking guy. Because that fits who I am, right? That fits you understand what I'm about. All right? Mordecai, in chapter 2, he's introduced not as a wise man, not as a government official. Chapter 2, verse 5, he's introduced as a Jew. And Haman... When he's introduced, chapter 3, verse 1, he's introduced as the Agagite. So here's what I want you to do. In the margin of your Bible, I want you to write Exodus chapter 17. Margin of your Bible, Exodus 17, next to, uh, next to uh, Haman's name. Because in Exodus chapter 17, it's a story where Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt. He's led them out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. And what happens is there's a group called the Amalekites. They are descendants of Esau. And they attack Israel with an with intention to completely annihilate Israel and to plunder all of their stuff. You can read about the story in Exodus chapter 17. You see these Amalekites, uh, they, they go into battle. They're trying to annihilate Israel. And what happens if you know that story? That's the story where Moses is leading the people. And whenever Moses' hands are up, the people win the battle. Whenever his hands go down... The people lose the battle. So remember that story? He sits down. He's got two friends that hold his hand up. And they help him to win. Okay? That comes out of this story in Exodus chapter 17. And what's going to happen is you're going to see these Amalekites from that day on. Israel wins the battle. From that day on, the Amalekites and Israel are going to be constantly being at war. They're arch enemies constantly battling one another. And underneath Exodus 17, I want you to write 1 Samuel 15. Again, this is so you understand the biblical narrative, because there's, there's a background to this. 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, King Saul is in charge. And God instructs King Saul, here's what I want you to do. I want you to exact my judgment. I want you to exact my judgment for the Amalekites plundering us and trying to destroy us. And so here's what he says. He says, Saul, I want you to go and I want you to destroy and wipe out the Amalekites. I want you to wipe them all out. Kill them all. And I want you to kill all their animals. Don't keep any of their stuff. Remember, they tried to plunder from us. So I want to be done with this once and for all. You get rid of everything and wipe them off the face of the planet. So what does Saul do? Saul goes into battle. He wins the battle. But instead of obeying... He takes a portion of them captive. He takes, he takes the king, Agag, he takes him as captive. And he takes some of the choicest animals, the best animals, and he takes them for himself. And he justifies and says, well, you know, God really won't want me to destroy these animals. Like, I'll take these animals and I'll tithe off them and God will be really thankful for me. I'll sacrifice these animals to show God just how much I love him. And so Saul doesn't necessarily follow through with what God instructed him to do. He justifies and here's, here, here's something that if you're a parent, you understand this. Um, this is true to all of our life. And I think, again, this is going to speak to someone today. Listen, partial obedience is still disobedience. When you're given an instruction, 
When your God has said, this is what I want from you, and you only obey partially, that is still disobedience. Doesn't matter how you spin it. Doesn't matter how you justify it. Partial obedience is still disobedience. That's what Saul's done. He partially obeyed, and that's disobedience. So the prophet Samuel has to come in. The prophet deals with King Agag. And while he's doing that, 400 uh, uh, of the Amalekites survive. They run away and they escape. And the king, or excuse me, the, the, the prophet Samuel, he goes to the king and says, listen, because you have disobeyed God, because that partial obedience is still disobedience, because you've disobeyed God, God's going to move away from you as king, and there's going to be a new king coming behind you. And that's where we see King David. So 400 uh, of King Agag's people get away, and guess where Haman comes from? Haman comes from that line. He's the Agagite. He's one of the uh, ancestors of the 400 that got away. And ever since that time in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you've got the Hatfield and the McCoys. You've got Agag, uh, you've got Haman who's from Agag, and you've got Mordecai from the Jew. And it's like the Hatfield and the McCoys, where the issue isn't bowing, the issue isn't this genocide. This is a result of an age-old animosity between the two that was never dealt with when, when, when it was supposed to be. It's worth mentioning right now, just thinking about this idea of the Hatfield and the McCoys and the, McCoys and the grudges that people hold. Nobody is born with a grudge. Like, do you understand that? Like, 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 prejudice is not a package deal when we are born. Hatred is something that we are, that is learned. Hatred is something that we are taught in. Hatred is something that we are trained in. These guys didn't have to hate each other, but they were taught, they were trained to hate one another. And this is how evil works. Where Haman, he's got this hatred, and he makes this decision, I'm going to destroy all the Jews. See how that hatred grows in an exaggerated manner? What should have just between him and, and, and Mordecai? It's this exaggerated manner. And so Mordecai, or Haman says, Mordecai, it's not enough just for me to kill you. He goes on this self-appointed mission, not unlike Hitler himself, to destroy all of the Jews on the face of the planet. So that's what Haman decides to do. Verse 7 says that Haman, he, he cast lots. He cast Per to determine the timing of this. And what this looks like is, is Haman, he had a little bit of a spirituality, spirituality from him, in him. And so on that day, you would take dice and you'd roll them. And you'd say, hey, hey, God, would you give me snake eyes or whatever that magic combination was supposed to be on the day you want me to go and do this. So I am, so it's favorable. So it has your blessing on it. And so the idea here is you see Haman with his dice and he's rolling over every day of the year. January 1st, roll. Oh, nope, I didn't get the magic number. He goes and goes over 300 rolls trying to get the exact day. And finally, 11 months later, somewhere down the line, uh, uh, he gets the right combination. He gets snake eyes or whatever it happens to be. The date is set 11 months later. This is when all the Jews are going to be destroyed. So verse 8 says that uh, Haman goes before the king. And he kind of Notice he doesn't tell the king the whole story. He kind of hides the whole story. He doesn't tell him anything about the history between uh, uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, between King Agag and King Saul. Now, he doesn't tell that. He just tells the king what he wants to hear. He plays on the king's pride. Remember, the king was a very proud man. He was the wealthiest, most well-known man throughout the entire world. This is a man who divorced his wife because she refused to come and embarrass him in front of all of his friends. So he plays on that pride and says, hey, king, listen, there are some people 
they don't obey your laws. King, there are some people that don't follow what your commands. King, these people are not good for you. King, I'm looking out for you, man. I got your best interest at heart. He says, King, I think you should make a decree that all of these people should be destroyed and killed. He goes, King, I'll even sweeten the deal. I will give you 10,000 talents of silver. Okay, I want you to understand 10,000 talents of silver is the equivalent of about 375 tons of silver. That is a lot of money. Again, remember the story where, where uh, King Xerxes, he throws these big parties. He invites 50,000 people to uh, the town and says, I'm going to give a seven-day party. He invites 15,000 people and they have a six-month party. He has spent an incredible amount of money to prepare to go into war. And then King Xerxes lead, leads his, his army into war and they lose. So he's probably, you imagine he's lost a lot of money. And so here's Haman who says, hey, king, I will give you the equivalent of three quarters of the annual revenue for the entire nation. Your entire empire, this would have been the equivalent of three quarters of an annual, uh, everything you would make in a year. That's a lot of money. So the king says, all right, let's do it. Here's my ring. The ring uh, given to Haman is kind of like a stamp of approval. If you had the king's ring, it means you had the, the power of attorney and you could decide what's going to happen for the king. And again, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the story of Mordecai and he tells the king about the plot. The king investigates and figures out, oh yeah, there's truth to that. But notice in this story, Haman comes and tells the king the story and does the king investigate? No, he doesn't. He just signs off on it and says, hey, there we go. This is just a reminder to us that every one of us, we need accountability. We need people who will speak into our lives. We need people who are strong enough to use words like, hey, dude, that's unwise. That's not very good. You've gone too far. You need to watch it. This is one of the benefits of being a part of the local church. Is that we have people here to walk through life with one another. Listen, I'll tell you what. There's no church that's perfect. There is absolutely no church that is perfect. But there's a benefit to us when we create a long-term commitment to the church where we're willing to say, hey, I'm going to stick around uh, because perhaps the church is there to encourage you and to speak into your life. And there are people who will do that in the local church. And so this is just my challenge to you. Man, be committed. Wherever it is, if it's restoration, be committed and be known and allow the people of God to speak into your life to grow together. So the king says, hey, the army is yours. You've got enough money to go do what you need to do. Uh, Go for it. And and this is, again, I want to just pause real quick right here because sometimes there's a temptation when we read the Bible. There's a temptation to be self-righteous, to be judgmental, to, to, to be hypocritical, to be moralistic people. Where we look at Xerxes, we look at Haman, we're like, man, there's a bad people. I'm glad I'm so, I I thank God every day that I'm one of the good people, right? I thank God every day that I'm not like Xerxes, that I'm not like Haman. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually says that anger and murder are on the same highway. One of them's just a little bit further down the road, right? When we hold hatred in our hearts, we do commit murder in our hearts, not with our hands. You know, the difference between Haman and and you and I is, Haman had the legal ability to murder. 
You and I, we lack the legal ability to murder. So instead, we murder in our heart in a way that doesn't extend to our hands. Isn't that what we do? Listen, who is it this morning? Who is it right now in your life that you're holding a grudge against? Who is it that you have anger and animosity that you've held on to in your heart? A former spouse? A former pastor? A former roommate? Maybe there's been a church that has offended you. Maybe you've had a boss or a coach or someone you trusted who took advantage of you and abused you. Who is it in your life that has made your life difficult and hasn't come back to make it right? Who is it that you hold that grudge against? Because I want us to be very careful with how we read the Bible. Because that animal-like nature that is in Xerxes, and Haman, the animal-like, animal-like nature that we are so easy to judge and say how wrong it is. Listen, that same nature resides in you and me. And we're not for the grace of God. We're not for the grace of God. That could be us. If we're not for the grace of God, for some of us, that has been us. And even right now, for some of us, that is us. Oh, for the grace of God, let's not read the Bible and think we're greater than everybody else because that same nature resides in every one of us. At this point of the story, Haman's gone before the king. He said, if we want all the Jews killed, the king gives him the permission to go and do it. At this point of the story, like I kind of expect God to intervene, right? I'm expecting God to, to do something, to do a miracle, I'm expecting God to send an angel who's going to stop ever. I expect God to bring a prophet who's going to speak to the king and say, Hey, king, this is bad. You shouldn't do this. But in the story, God doesn't speak. God doesn't act. The story just keeps going. The next verse, it says, The scribes, they write out the decree. They send it throughout the entire kingdom. And everybody's nation and everybody's language. And it says, Everything's to be destroyed. This includes Jerusalem. This kingdom included Jerusalem where all the Jews who had been faithful to God are rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the, the presence of God. This includes all of them as well. And the king's instruction, check, check this out. The king's instruction is on a single day, one day, all of the Jews across the empire are going to be killed. All of the Jews. This means that the little girls with sugar and spice and everything nice, the little boys with snips and snails and puppy dog tails, this means that all the old ladies who can't get up and run away from the soldiers. This means all the old guys who don't hear the soldiers coming in. Everybody in a single day will be killed. Again, just, this is horrible. And I want you to feel the tension of this. I want you to feel the tension where, where this is just not right. It's, it's wrong. This is an injustice. It's not fair. Like, here's God's people. Like, why is this being decreed? This is perplexing. And frustrating and confusing. We, we wonder, God, where are you? God, where are you when all of this is happening? And if we think that's terrible, verse 15 says that, that Haman and King Xerxes, at the end of the day, they've issued the decree. They just decide, hey, we're going to stop off and have a couple drinks like it's any other day. We'll, cut, we'll have a couple drinks. We'll have a good time laughing it up. Meanwhile, outside, there's confusion. From all the people, there's revolt. I mean, all these people in the kingdom are saying, hey, the Jews, those are our neighbors. Those are our friends. Those are our co-workers. We love those people. We care about them. They're distraught over what the king has done. And what's the king doing? He's sitting having a drink with, with Haman like any other day. 
is what it's supposed to be like for us as Christians. That when we love our community, we don't just love the godly people, we love everybody. And that is a part of where you see the outside community, they're outraged over what's happening because they love the Jews. They love these people. These people have been their friends. They've, they've been around them. Listen, that's what we're trying to do with Restoration Church, is it not? We want to be a people who loves our city well. To where if, if Restoration Church no longer existed, I would love for the, church, the city to say, man, we're saddened by that. Because of how you've loved our city. I think that's the picture of the way that these Jews are viewed in, this, in Persia. As they're saying, we like, we like these people. They care about us. They're, they're gracious to us. They're, they're friendly to us. And so here we, here's that story. This is what's going to happen. And it's almost chilling. It's almost hard to believe that a king would decide, hey, I'm going to destroy all the Jews. It's almost hard to believe if it wasn't for Auschwitz or Rwanda or Kosovo or Sudan. And of all those places, places we've seen these horrible things happen. The story of Esther is a reminder to every one of us to see that God's providence does not cushion us from trials. God's providence doesn't cushion us from, from difficulty and doesn't protect us necessarily from evil. In fact, Esther chapter 3 is a reminder to every one of us that we live in a world of conflict. Do we not? That God's sovereign hand of providence, it becomes the theater it becomes a stage where, where, where conflict is played out, where there is a war being engaged, where the people of God often become a target primarily because of that, because they are the people of God. And so we're in the middle of the story. Here's what's happened. All the Jews are going to be destroyed because of the king's command, because of Haman and his bitterness and his, his anger and his hatred. We're in the middle of this trying to understand God's providence. And I'm thinking, where's the hope in this? So here's what I want to do. I want you to see two things of hope in the midst of God's providence. Okay, here, here's what we find. Here's the hope we find from, from chapter 3. Number one, we find hope in the fact that we know the nature of the conflict. Okay, we know the nature of this conflict. I mean, Mordecai refusing to bow and Haman's genocide is actually part of a greater conflict. A conflict between the, the Jews and the Amalekites that started way back in Exodus chapter 17. This is just another round of the ancient conflict between these two warring people. But in fact, there's actually more to it. This is actually another round of an ancient conflict that started from the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 3, this is where God and Satan, they started a conflict. Where the seed of woman is fighting against the seed of the serpent. And they've been at war ever since. That there's this war happening between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Where there's this ancient conflict happening from the beginning of time. And this story of the Jews and the Amalekites, uh, of Haman and Mordecai, is just another round of this ancient battle that has been going on from that day. And do you recognize that that same battle, Satan versus God, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, it still rages today. But think, think about this, like, like every hero has an arch enemy. Batman, who's, who's Batman's enemy? The Joker, the Joker. Superman, he's got Lex Luthor. 
Star Wars, the Jedi, they have the Sith. And you and I, we have an arch enemy. Satan. We have an enemy who has been a part of a long battle. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Our enemy Satan is, a, is like a roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour. See, for us to understand what providence and how it works out, and for us to discern providence in the middle of our life, we have to stand back and recognize the nature of what is really happening all around us. That, listen, despite the conflict that you're in the middle of right now, despite, despite the difficulty and the frustration you have, despite the anger you have towards people in your life, the anger at your siblings, the anger at your, your ex-spouse, the anger at your coworker, the anger you have for that neighbor who just annoys you, the frustration you have from someone who has unjustly wronged you. Listen, all of those things are, 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 are part of a battle between good and evil, between you and Satan. They're, 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 these are people that we get so frustrated and angry with, they're not the enemy. They're being used by the enemy. Do you understand the nature of the conflict? That the, the, the conflict that we find ourselves in the middle of is not just a conflict between you and them, it's between you and God. It's between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. That Satan puts these people and uses them to distract you and to, to hurt you. Ephesians chapter 6 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against hosts of spiritually darkness in heavenly places. Listen, the lines are drawn. The battle has been joined. If you claim the name of Jesus, you are engaged in this, this, this conflict that has been happening since the beginning of time. When Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, you have been entered into that conflict. And you have an enemy named Satan who is attacking you and using these people to attack you. But here's the good news from the book of Esther. Second thing that we find about hope in, the, in God's providence is that we know the end of the story from the beginning, right? The sad irony in life, you've all seen it. The wicked people, they do prosper. God's people, man, we often get overlooked. We go unrewarded. Our best plans get overturned. Our good deeds, our hard work goes unnoticed. We aren't recognized for all the good that we do. And most bitterly, that we see other people prosper who we deem as being less deserving. In our eyes, they're less deserving. And that injustice hurts. That injustice grows the bitterness inside of us. But listen, you and I, we stand in a very different position than Esther and Mordecai. Because yes, in the middle of our difficult times, uh, we can't see the end. But you and I, we can see the end of the story. We know the end of the story. We can, we can bear life with patience and grace. And we can trust God's providence because we know the end of the story. The battle has been decisively won already. Jesus took that conflict. Jesus took our enemy. He took the worst that the enemy could throw at him. And he made a public spectacle out of it after he nailed it to the cross and said, look what I've done. The fact that, 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 that Satan took the worst. Satan took, uh, Satan used Herod. He used Pontius Pilate. He used the soldiers to create, to, to commit the greatest evil and injustice in nailing Jesus to the cross. 
And the very thing that, that, that Satan tried to use to bring in justice, to destroy God, is the very thing that God used to simultaneously win the entire war. He used Pontius Pilate and the soldier and said, hey, you can try and kill my Jesus, but that's exactly what God used to say, listen, the war's now won. I win. I've defeated death. I've defeated the worst that you can throw at me. God moved not in spite of that great injustice and evil against Jesus. God actually worked through that act of evil and injustice to secure our salvation. And as we read through the book of Esther and we learn about providence, and we wrestle with things that don't make sense. We wrestle with this. This isn't fair. God, I don't understand what's happening. Why am I struggling right now? Why are these bad things happening? Listen, we know how the story ends, right? We know how the story ends. We know how history ends. Because God's told us. Revelation chapter 21. God says, I'm making a new heavens and a new earth. I'm going to make this place where I actually dwell with you. And I will wipe every tear from your eye. Death will be no more. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more struggle. He said, I am making all things new. That is the end of the story. That the lamb who was slain on the cross is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he reigns over all things. And he will right every wrong. He will redeem every broken thing. Listen, if we could just keep the end in mind, we know how the story of Esther is going to end. That Esther is going to approach the king and say, hey, king, this is what Haman's done. I'm actually one of God's people. And the king's going to reverse course. And he's going to say, you're right, you're right, that's wrong of me. We know how that story ends. Esther and Mordecai didn't. But you and I, we know how the story of history is going to end. And knowing the end, we can be fortified, we can be strengthened, we can have the motivation to press on, to persevere through the darkest of storms, because we know this isn't the end. We know the story continues, and that in the end, God's going to win. Listen, knowing the end of the story, it gives us that motivation to endure. It gives that motivation to press on. Listen, you may have a difficult boss that you can't stand working for. It's not the end of the story. You moms in those early seasons with little kids, you're like, man, I just want, I just want to sleep for three hours by myself without being kicked and sneezed upon. And you go through these long days, you're like, is this ever going to end? Listen, it's, it is going to end. There's grace that is coming at the end of this. The health difficulties that we bear, that we carry. Man, I've got this, this thing and this thing and this thing. Listen, it's not the end. God has said, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to right all the wrong. I'm going to fix it. The hard people in our life, the difficult people. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to make all things right. We know the end of the story. And you can endure life with grace and patience, knowing that this is not the end. That God will take the broken things and redeem them. When we understand the nature of the conflict, doesn't it begin to change how we view the people around us? Where instead of my sibling being the enemy, I recognize, man, my sibling's actually being used by the enemy. I actually can have grace and compassion on that person. 
Instead of viewing them as the enemy and, have, and, and, and pointing all my anger towards them, I, I view them with grace and compassion because they're being used by the enemy. Listen, Restoration Church, the providence of God, the providence of God tells us, we defined it in the beginning, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he rules over all the details of our lives, over our times, over all places. And he's ruling things for our good and for his glory. In the middle of it, we may not understand it. We may not understand why, God, why this is happening. But I want you to take hope because we know the end of the story. We know how things end. That there's a Savior who went to the cross for you. Who took the worst that Satan could throw at him. He hung on that cross and he died for us. He rose from that grave conquering Satan and death and hell and anything that Satan could throw at him. The battle's been won. So we can press on one more day. We can fight on knowing this is not the end. Greater things are yet to come.